I suspect that most of us would not consider ourselves superstitious. But we live in a world where many people are. You know, you think about the things that that people talk about in terms of superstitions, about things that are bad luck or sometimes good luck. You know, black cat running in front of you or uh, stepping on a crack. You know, you probably, that little saying, step on a crack, break your mother's back. And so, you know, we didn't want to do that. Um, Walking under a ladder, which honestly just seems like good sense to me that you don't want to do that in the first place. And, and, you know, and, and we people, I know people who, you know, they have a lucky rabbit's foot or they have a lucky coin in their pocket or, or they have a lucky suit that they wear to their job interviews. And I want to say, how lucky can that suit be if you're still having to have job interviews? But, you know, beside the point. Uh, and, and, you know, we, we, we see people all the time who, who do that and we do it subtly as well as overtly. Probably superstition is most prevalent in the world of sports. I was asked someone this morning and about soccer, and they said, I really think soccer players had a lot of superstitious rituals, but a lot of sports do. If you ever watch Rafael Nadal play tennis, one of the top tennis players in the world, when they, at a changeover, when he sits down in his chair, he will put his towel exactly the same way and turn, lean his racket the same way. And when he gets ready to get up, he has two water bottles and he sets them on the, on the court or the ground there just exactly right in front of each other. And the labels are always turned to whichever end of the court he's playing. And I think to myself, this is one of the top players of the world. And something in his mind is saying, if those things are turned this direction, I'll play better. It's kind of crazy when you think about it. Baseball probably is as has as much of that as anything. As you see, you know, managers walking out to the pitcher's mound and they always step over the white line. Uh, just a, a, you watch a batter getting in to start to hit, and they go through all these gyrations and things that they do. And you see these superstitions. And I keep thinking, you would think that an athlete like that would say, "It's my skill and it's my preparation that's enough." And yet there's something about these little acts that make them feel a little bit more comfortable with what they're doing. The chance for more, being more successful. Now we kind of understand that because even as spectators, we might do things. This week, one of the pitchers for the Cincinnati Reds threw a no-hitter. And it reminded me back to 1978, we went to a Reds game, we were playing the Cardinals, and we saw Tom Seaver pitch a no-hitter. That was pretty awesome. And... What, ended up, what I remember about that is that as it got to about the fourth or fifth inning and there were no hits, you began to think, hmm, maybe he might do this. And, and get, I began to get real nervous as a fan watching this game. And, and I remember back, and it's, it was so stupid just thinking about it now, but I remember sitting in my seat and, my, and my, I was getting sweaty, probably because of the heat, but also because I was getting nervous. And, and I, was, I would take my thumb and I would rub it through my fingers like this after every pitch. Every pitch, do this. And it worked. He pitched a no-hitter. <laughs> it, was, it was awesome. It's even more ludicrous to think that me sitting up in the 120th row of this massive stadium would have any effect on what was going on on the field by what I was doing with my hands. But there's something in us that wants to believe that somehow we can control things that feel uncontrollable to us. 
And we're looking for every way that we can find to control what feels out of control. And I think there's something of that in the the story of Jephthah that we read in Judges 11. Jephthah is raised in a family where he's an illegitimate child. His mother is a prostitute. And and his father has a wife and they have other children. And when he gets of age, they kick him out of the house because he's not going to get their inheritance. And he goes to the northern part of Israel... And he, he gathers around him a, a group of pretty, pretty out there guys. And, and they become, they become a, a gang. And he gets a, gets a reputation for being a pretty amazing warrior. And the Ammonite have, Ammonites are, are persecuting Israel. They have oppressed them. And again, because of Israel's sin, and God's allowed this to happen. And that cycle that goes through the book of Judges. And... And finally they say enough and they cry out to God and, and they says, all right, I'll help you. And they hear of, of Jephthah and they say, would you help us? Now, that story gets really contemporary, doesn't it? You know, you get kicked out of a group and then they come back to you a little bit later and say, you know what? Sorry, could you come back and help us in the group? And our natural reaction is to say, forget it. Well, Jephthah, is a, he's, he's the guy who makes bargains and deals. So he says, well, I'll do it, but what are you going to give me? I want to be the leader of this whole area here. Will you let me do that? If I, if I rescue you, if I come back, will you, will you give it to me? And they say, sure. So Jephthah prepares his men for battle. And just as they're about to start the battle, the scripture says that the spirit of the Lord comes upon him. I have no idea what that feels like, what that means exactly. But it must be pretty awesome for the spirit of God to come upon you in such a way that the writer of the story tells us. And it must be some sense of confidence, some sense of awareness of the presence of God in a person's life that you didn't have before that. Something that says, look, I am with you. We've got this. For Jephthah, it's not quite enough. It it still feels a little bit out of control. And so he says, God, I I appreciate your spirit. This is good. But how about we make a deal? If you give me victory, whatever comes out of my house first, I'll sacrifice to you. Burnt offering. And Jephthah goes into battle. He wins. Awesome celebration. He comes home, turns into his driveway. Who comes out of his house? His daughter. And the celebration turns to mourning and grief and pain. And ultimately, he does what he has vowed to do. It seems to me from... Thousands of years later. And even knowing that God says to to the people of Israel that if you make a vow, you better keep it. So be careful about the vows you make. God is serious about vows. Nevertheless, it seems to me, and granted we're looking at it from a long time later, that this is a case where Jephthah might well have said, maybe I won't keep this vow. 
Now, I don't know who he expected to come out of his house. I don't know if he normally was greeted by one of the goats when he came home. I, I don't know. I suspect probably a slave. More than likely, maybe, maybe one of the slaves. And that's still abhorrent to us. But in that culture, slaves really weren't viewed as human beings in the way that we would view people. They were tools. Property. But here comes his daughter. And in that moment, you would expect him to say, wait, wait, wait a second. Even if it means, God, that I take the judgment on me, I'm sparing her. But he doesn't. There is something in the human understanding of things and the way we live our lives that, that even though we don't sacrifice family members, there are times when we are so enamored with the goal of our lives, when we're so enamored with what we're doing and what's important to us, that in some respects, we do sacrifice people we love. That we do, we get, we get so enamored with the dreams of our lives and, and the things that we're passionate about that we ignore people who are important to us. And, and we push aside people that we love. And we hurt people who are closest to us in order to get that end that we desperately want. And it's not just about family. It's about people we work with. People who, who live near us. Relationships that we have. Our closest friends. We are so enamored with doing good and doing what's right and, and, and accomplishing what is just. And we, we become so focused on that. We don't realize the carnage that's left behind us in getting to that goal. And we hurt people with our words. We hurt people with our actions, our attitudes. And in order to get to the goal that we believe is right and just and good, we push people away. And we hurt them. I think if we turn that around, we understand it. Because we live in a world where we're hurt. We live in a world where, where people hurt us. Maybe you grew up in a family. Again, as we've been talking the last few weeks, just like the, the church, none of our families are perfect. No churches are perfect. We hurt each other. And, and we, leave, we leave a path of, of pain often with people that we're closest to. And we know what it's like to be on the other side of the pain and to, and to get that. We understand it. And what's so amazing is that after having been hurt... It's still so easy for us to hurt. And we can get so focused on things that are passionate for us. Things that are good. Things of the kingdom that we want to accomplish. And that God wants us to accomplish. But we get so focused on the end. We don't realize what we're doing in the process. And I think that's because we've been sold a bill of goods that we have bought. That God is primarily concerned about success. God is primarily concerned about results. 
God is really focused on the end and accomplishing what we've been called to accomplish. When the reality is, while God is certainly concerned about results, he is even more concerned about the journey and the process of getting to those results. If we, if we bring dozens of people into a relationship with Christ, but we hurt people and we reject people and, 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 we're, and we're cross with people and we leave this wake of carnage of people behind us, what have we really gained for the kingdom? What message are we sending to the rest of the world? That the strategy of the world is no different than the strategy of the church. We've bought into that. I think probably the reason we wrestle with that and the reason we do that is because of our insecurities. Our insecurities cause us to want to... to to prove that we have worth and value. We want people to see that. And in our culture, the most profound way in which people value us and make us feel worth is success. Getting results. That's what we honor. That, that's, that's, that's where we put our accolades. That's often how we value one another. What have you gotten done? What have you accomplished? In the church, it's often about numbers. How many people do you have? How much offerings? How many offerings have you taken in? How many people? And those are not bad things at all. But those become how we measure our value and worth, not just as individuals, but as a congregation. And when that's our, where that's a place where we get value, then we do whatever we have to do to get to that end. And you see that in Jephthah. Uh, You know, he's been kicked out of his house. He's been rejected by his family. That hurts. That's painful. And when he comes back, his whole point is, I want to make sure everyone knows I have power. I'm in control. If I, I'm not just going to do this because I'm a nice guy. I'm going to do this because you and I have made a deal. We have a bargain and you're going to stick to it. And when this is done and when the dust clears, everyone's going to say, boy, we made a big mistake kicking him out. And that insecurity in him, the hurt and the pain drives him just like it does us. And that drive for value and worth leads us to live our lives trying to control life and often trying to control God. And has a direct bearing on how we relate to God and and how we pray to God. So we find ourselves in situations where we pray prayers like, God, if you get me out of this, I'll go to church every Sunday. I'll go to church three out of four Sundays if you get me out of this. Let's not get carried away here, right? God, if you make this relationship happen, I'll, I'll become a missionary. God, if you do this for me, I'll do this for you. And of course, the most ludicrous part of that argument is that we would have anything God would need. 
we're like, the, we're, we're like me sitting up in the stands, rubbing my fingers, thinking that has a bearing on the game. To think that, you know, our, our arrogance, that we actually could bargain with God and we could offer him something other than ourselves that God might need. It's an overtly pagan mindset. It's the mindset of the nations that live around Israel. You, you read the stories of those nations and their gods. All of their gods are capricious and, and manipulative. And, and they don't like human beings. And they try to avoid doing anything good for human beings because they don't want to. And it goes back to the creation stories. When you read the creation stories of the, of the other nations of the world... They seem to fall in the categories of human beings come into existence either by accident. We didn't mean to do that, but hey, they, they got created. Or as a form of punishment against other gods or a tool to use against other gods. No wonder there is a mindset that the gods don't want to do good to us. But you compare that to our creation story and we discover that God creates human beings because he wants to. Because he wants relationship with us. Because human beings are important to God. Because God is loving and good. And when the foundation of our existence is that God creates us because he wants us, it completely changes our relationship of how we connect with God. Somewhere deep inside our being, we have this pagan mindset of God... Because of our hurts and our disappointments and the struggles of life, we have this pagan mindset of God that we're not quite sure he's as good and as trustworthy as he says he is. And so we have to bargain with God. Jesus understands that human struggle. In the Sermon on the Mount, he says to his disciples... Ask, seek. And if you human beings who are so messed up know know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more your loving Father in heaven who created you wants to give good gifts to his children. At the heart of our issues of control and bargaining is a skewed view of who God is and of how God feels about us. So many people have disappointed us. So many people have rejected us and hurt us that we treat God the same way we treat each other. With skepticism and uncertainty and with making deals and bargains. And all the while God is saying, you don't have to do that. I love you. I love giving good gifts to you. In fact, Jesus says to the disciples, you don't, you're not getting things. You're not asking. God wants to pour out blessings on you. Just ask. Come. God is always doing good, more good than you could ever dream or imagine. Even when you don't ask, God's doing good. And here's Jephthah, who is so focused on 
on his own insecurities, so focused on, on accomplishing this task and, and being seen as, as important among people that I don't think he even realizes what he's doing to his daughter and his family. And what's so ironic is that he wins this battle and he becomes the head of Gilead, but he has no descendants. No one follows him. Nothing else is going to carry on because of this rash vow that he makes. And everything gets turned upside down. I suspect you probably have read or seen, heard something about the, uh, the debacle this week in the, in, the, in the replacement referees of the National Football League. I was watching the game Monday night, and as a Packers fan, boy, that was irritating. And they lost the game because of these replacement referees' decisions. And as, as frustrating as that was, what it really intrigued me was that on Tuesday, there was this whole mass of articles. And I don't mean just on ESPN, but on, on other just normal, regular news sites. There were articles about these replacement referees and what was going on with them and and an article on, on Wednesday and articles on Thursday. And it just sort of just kind of exploded. And you know, when everything written was about the replacement referees and how they, they cost the Packers the game. And, and how they cost a lot of people who play fantasy football winning that week and points. And, and they cost the people who gamble on, on uh, football tons of money. And all of a sudden it hit me. Nobody's writing an article about the game. There's no, nobody's writing an article that says, here's how the players played, here's how the coaches coached, here were the great things that happened in the game, who scored the touchdowns, who did what. Every article just about was replacement referees. And when you read the story of Jephthah, what should have been a headline of God uses Jephthah to bring about freedom for Israel, instead, the thing that comes to our mind when we read the story is, Jephthah makes a crazy, rash vow that costs his daughter her life. And our main goal and purpose and the passion of our lives is control and bargaining because we can't see who God is. Then the focus of our prayers... And the focus of, of our relationships are all about us instead of about God and what he's doing. And about who he is as the gracious, merciful, loving one. It intrigues me that Jephthah is only mentioned one time in the New Testament. It's in Hebrews chapter 11. And the writer of, he, of this chat, of Hebrews is, is providing this litany of, of people who have great faith. And he gets to verse 32 and he says, what can I say? I don't have time to talk about people like Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah. And David and Samuel and the prophets who did great things for God. And I read that and I'm surprised and honestly I'm a little bit irritated. Why? Of all the people he could have picked, why Jephthah? Come on. 
And I don't know exactly, but something in the back of my mind says it's reminding us, first of all, that people are a lot more complex than we often realize. And life is complex. But the main thing that comes to my mind is that Jephthah is a story of God's grace in spite of. We wish the story wouldn't have ended as it did. We wish Jephthah would have made some different decisions. We wish that, that he wouldn't have, have chosen to, to move the path in the path that he chooses. But even though he does, God is gracious and merciful. And I have to tell you, it's awfully good to hear that and to see that. Because I make bad decisions. And I hurt people. And I bargain with God sometimes. And I want to control things. How awesome to know that even still, in spite of, God is good. And God is gracious. And God is merciful. Because you do the same thing. And we're reminded that we worship a God who is about grace in spite of. I think God is is putting before us the question, are we going to live our lives trying to control trying to bargain, trying to, trying to manage? Or are we going to live our lives with our hands off? Letting God lead us in whatever direction he wants to lead us. Taking us in whatever direction he wants to take us as individuals and as a body of believers. Because we are convinced That the God we worship and the God who's leading us and the God who's calling us is good. And he can be trusted. Heavenly Father, give us that truth. Give us that mindset. Give us that heart to believe that you are good and merciful and trustworthy even in spite of. Make us people as we work for you as we're passionate about your calling in our lives and in this world that we follow it with our hands off Because we trust you. And we ask this through Christ. Amen.